It is the church's foundation uh, to which we look this day and always that foundation upon which not the physical structure is uh, standing but the deepest spiritual structure that makes the church the body of Christ with Christ as our head. Last week we looked at the story of the giving of the the ten teachings, the the commandment, ten commandments of God, and the cleansing of the temple by Jesus, and asked the question, what does this teach us about what it means uh, to be the, the Christian church, and reflected on the idea of God's purpose in saving Israel, not so much from Egyptian enslavement, but for the building of a land of justice and the establishment of a culture based in law rather than in self-serving and selfish um, conduct, but a higher principle of the embodiment of God's dream for all of humanity and the cleansing of the temple uh, by Jesus, which recalls each of us to consider the ways in which we may think we are doing that which is godly, but to always be asking ourselves, are we truly acting in a way that is consistent with God's dream for humanity? So further today, I would ask not just about God's dream for humanity, but for God's dream um, for the Christian church. What does it mean uh, for us to be the church? And so today, again, we'll look back through history um, to the people Israel, Israel, our ancestors in faith, their experience and the experience of the early church, the teachings and the transformative embodiment of the love, the presence, the person of God in Jesus of Nazareth. Why does the church exist? Is it an accident of human history or is it somehow a sign of the providence of God? Now, clearly, the elements of human history and the sociology of the ancient world, and particularly in the time of the Roman Empire, contributed to the spread of Christianity, but it's not possible to, I think, fully explain or understand the existence of the church merely by that sociological or political uh, cultural analysis, but we must look more deeply at the theological underpinnings and actually the hand of God, the spirit of God in creating and sustaining, empowering, correcting, and directing uh, the church as the body of Christ. So first, let's look to numbers. The five books of Moses, which recount from Exodus on the experience of the people Israel as they wandered through the desert for 40 years, that great biblical number, 40 days and 40 nights, the rain, the flood of Noah, Jesus, 40 days in the desert, tempted the 40 days of the Israelites wandering, making the transition from an enslaved identity to a free identity, a liberated identity, an identity which is dedicated to a much larger purpose than oneself. And so in this wandering, Now, the people confront many challenges, and one of the challenges they confront is how do they keep it together? Food, water, shelter. 
And so there's a lot of grumbling that goes on, as you might expect. There's always grumbling that goes on in long journeys, particularly when you don't really know what your destination is. Remember those old questions during the long drive for a summer vacation? Are we there yet? Oh, yes, that's the only reasonable answer to that question. Never ever say, oh, no, it's another six hours. Say, oh, yes, yes, we're almost there. But the grumbling that takes place here reported in the 21st chapter of Numbers, a strange, strange story. From Mount Hor, the people of Israel set out by the way to the Red Sea. They keep wandering back and forth, it seems, over the same territory, back to the Red Sea, and around to the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and they spoke against God and against Moses. Now, this is a new level of murmuring. These are the passages which are called the, the murmuring passages. The people are murmuring before this against Moses, but now they begin to murmur against God as well. And they asked Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness? There is no food, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food, the manna that they're collecting. They're tired of the manna. They want, I don't know, a hamburger for all I know. They're tired of this miserable food. And then, in the midst of their murmuring, it gets worse. So the Lord sent poisonous serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many Israelites died. Then the people came to Moses and said, Whoa, we've sinned against God by speaking against the Lord and against you, and we pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. They view this visitation of the fiery serpents, the poisonous snakes, as a punishment visited upon them because they have murmured not just against Moses, but now against God. It's one thing to complain about the food is another thing to complain about God. And so the, Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Now make a poisonous serpent. A seraph is the Hebrew word. A seraph. It's a kind of angel. You may remember in the uh, passage when Isaiah is in the temple, and he has a vision of God and the seraphim and the cherubim are flying around him singing, Holy, 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 holy almighty, the Lord of hosts is holy. The seraphim are the ones who carry from the, Brazil, the, 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 the coals and they cauterize, they cleanse Isaiah's lips with these burning coals, the seraphim. They're angels, not like the current cultural angelology. You know, you can order online seraphim, little stuffed seraphim named Abby and Elizabeth. That's not what Moses is doing here in the desert. These are fiery, it's a fiery serpent. Make a 
poisonous serpent, a seraph, and set it up on a pole, and everyone who is bitten shall look upon it and live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze, put it upon a pole, and whenever a serpent bit someone, that person would look upon the serpent of bronze and live. Amen. Now this is a strange story for so many reasons, not least of which is it certainly sounds like they're creating an idol, which in the second commandment they are prohibited from doing. It sounds like magic. But at a deeper level, it offers us the opportunity to recognize that it is when we face that which we most deeply fear, in this case the serpents, when we face that which we most deeply fear, we discover the courage to answer that fear, to cope with that malady, the courage to face down and to face into that which seems so threatening when in fact relying upon God we can face into it and thereby move through it. Actually, it sounds a lot like the scientists who faced into SARS-CoV-2 and developed the antidote. If we'd all run in fear, leaving our masks trailing in our wake, we'd be in a deeper problem than we already are. But because some people had the courage to face into that which we most desperately feared, that the antidote, the answer, those who wear their masks and practice social distancing, facing into our fear, not pretending it doesn't exist, but in facing into it, having the courage to actually finally to face it down. And so like the Israelites at the Red Sea in the land of Edom, the things that threaten and beset us, the mumbling that so much and murmuring so much a part of our own lives, we can set aside and face that which is really the problem and find the courage to carry on and to move through the current circumstances. The Apostle Paul, in writing his letter to the Ephesians in the second chapter, one of the truly seminal pieces, one of the foundation pieces of the theology of the church, was looking at a similar problem experienced by the Ephesians a thousand years after that of the Israelites, as they were living into this new identity, Jews who are also followers of Jesus. These are the earliest days. Christians as a separate religion don't exist. All of the followers, like 
Jesus, a Jewish, Paul himself, is a Pharisee, Saul, who becomes Paul when he's called as a minister and evangelist to the Gentiles. And so Gentiles are being welcomed into this sectarian movement uh, within Judaism, and they're facing into the challenges that come with this new emerging reality. They are deeply concerned about their salvation. That is to say, how they will live in a right relationship with God. Salvation, as we know from the history of the people Israel and God's liberating love in the Exodus, salvation is not so much from something, enslavement, as it is for something greater, that is to say justice and love, the establishment thereby of God's dream of peace, of shalom, return to the place of wholeness, the equanimity and the homeostasis of God's creative purpose. And so Paul writes, God is rich in mercy, and out of great love, the love with which God loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, spiritually dead, not physically dead, even when we were dead through our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, that is to say the gift of God, by God's choice to love you, by grace, you have been saved. For by grace, we have been saved through faith. Faith is not subscribing to an established doctrine or set of ideas or beliefs, theological, intellectual, philosophical proposals, about God. That's not faith in the Bible. Faith is a trusting relationship with God. Trusting God is with you, for you, creates you, loves you, sustains you, secures you. Faith is not an intellectual assent to a set of propositions. It is a lived experience of the presence of God in your life that God has a predisposition for you that Jesus is aware of you, that God loves you, living in the conscious understanding of that reality is to be saved. You have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of our works, so that no one may boast. For we are what God has made us, created in Christ Jesus 
four good works which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. The Bible is crystal clear on this point. There's no ambiguity, there's no waffling, there's no openness to question about the cause and effect, the chronology, the process by which we experience salvation and live a righteous life, a godly life, a loving life, a decent, humane life. And we have taken the very clear system of the Bible and have consistently within our culture and in our own hearts and minds turned it on its head. The Bible is clear. God loves you, saves you, because God loves you and wants you, desires you, wants a loving relationship with you. And therefore, you are able to live the righteous life, to live a godly life, to live, as Paul says, created us in Jesus Christ for good works. And we've taken that and turned it on its head. If we believe the right thing, if we say the right thing, if we do the right thing, then God will love us. We have put the cat before the horse to our great detriment and suffering. Not only personally, but in the way we structure and understand our connection and how we live together as the body of Christ. So why did God create the church? To exercise the will of God in a predisposition for the poor to serve the world, period, full stop. God created the church to serve the world. From the Gospel of uh, John. For God so loved the world that God gave his only Son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. This is one of the most widely misunderstood, misapplied, and wrongly interpreted passages in all of Scripture. Because it completely twists and turns on its head John's understanding of the meaning of the word believe. We think it means that intellectual assent to a set of propositions. That's not belief in the Bible. Belief in the Bible is living in a loving relationship, trusting relationship with God. It means opening yourself, being vulnerable to God. Not saying this, that, or the other item of a, a set of doctrines or dogmas handed down through the centuries it's not subscription to a particular phrase or oath. 
but it is a living relationship. And the eternal life is John's way of expressing the idea which is expressed in Paul of living in Christ or in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, to be in the kingdom of God. Eternal life, the kingdom of God, to be in Christ, they are equivalent terms, which is to say to be fully living in the conscious understanding, the realization, the recognition that you are beloved of God. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Because in that loving relationship, we find ourselves in our true identity. The beloved of God and the body of Christ through which the world is served. Your hands, my hands, your heart, my heart, all the hearts and minds and energies and resources and desires and highest aspirations of the followers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, Christians around the world who live to be the body of Christ in the world, to love the world in the way that God loves the world, without condition. That is to say, to give ourselves over to the goodness and the fullness and the fulfillment of God's dream for all human beings and to have a predisposition for the poor, the lost, the least, the lonely, as we prayed in blessing the welcome basket to serve first those who are last. And in doing so, as we move through this season of light, Lent, we are prepared for an Easter in which that light and love will show forth again for the renewal of our lives and for the life of all God's beloved and broken world, that we might be joined in repairing and healing is the body of Christ. Amen.